Well, good morning, and open your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. My name is Ryan Fultz. I did spend a large portion of my life overseas. Um, I'm the director of high school ministries here at our church, and so I'm just glad to be able to be with you this morning. I want to just, while you're turning to Mark chapter 9, update you a little bit on my family, what's been going on in our family. Uh, This has been a crazy month for us. About um, three weeks ago, we just finished up high school camp, which meant I took about 100 high school students and 15 leaders away for a week um, while my wife was 39 weeks pregnant. Um, We prayed and prayed and prayed and asked many of you to pray with us that the baby would not come while we were at camp. Uh, And that happened, uh, but the baby came 10 days late. So next time I ask for prayer, chill out just a little bit. So on July 3rd, uh, we welcomed Josiah William to our family. Um, Yep, thank you. Baby and and mom are doing fine. They are at home just kind of resting. We're not sleeping much at night, as you can imagine. Um, Shortly thereafter, uh, we celebrated our eight-year anniversary, wedding anniversary. I also turned 28. And at some point in time during all of this, I was supposed to get sleep and prepare a sermon. At the end of today, you can let me know which one I actually did. (laughs) But I wanted to actually, before we get into Mark 9, I wanted to thank you as a church family. Um, Ministry can be hard, but it is made so much easier when we've got a support system like I've had. Just about every day that I was at church, there was uh, a member of our church family uh, at our house with my wife, uh, being a, a helpful support, but also an encouragement to her when she was quite ready to be done with, with pregnancy. After we had Josiah, you guys and our small group put together a, a meal system where people are dropping off meals for the next couple of weeks every other day, and it's been an incredible blessing to our family. And even this past week, when I was trying to figure out how am I going to get this sermon ready, I thought I was going to have this week to do it. The Lord had different plans. Uh, we had a couple of different people come over to our house so I could come into the office two days to really get this preparation done. So I just want to thank you. Uh, it is a great, great privilege to be a part of a church that truly cares for one another. And then what I can put something up on Facebook, hey, the Fultzes need help, Um, we're turning away people, not posting it three and four and five times hoping somebody will help. So just thank you. Uh, It is a privilege to serve and be a part of a church that loves people like that. So today though, today we will be in Mark chapter 9. Now, uh, I want to give a little bit of a disclaimer. This is a little different for me. I've never preached through narrative before. So what I mean by that is we are very good at looking at, you know, say, Colossians and seeing big theological truths and putting them into practice. But when you start looking at some of the Gospels, you become a storyteller. You've got to kind of help people get into uh, the moment, not just think of it as something that just might have happened. Because I I confess, I think most of the time we see these as fairy tales rather than true historical accounts. So today I'm going to be asking you to put yourself in the text and try to see through some of the eyes of some of the different people that are there. Uh, First service went all right, so it's not crazy, Um, but I'm just going to ask for your help to to, to think about it on on a deeper level. It's not just Jesus said, now we do, but there's, I want you to watch Jesus, see how he responds, see what he cares about. Is he compassionate or is he harsh? Is he loving or Unloving. I want you to see from our text this morning uh, the kind of Savior that we serve as Christians. So let's go. We're going to go Mark chapter 9, verse 14. I'm going to read 14 through 29. Uh, I'll pray and then we'll get to work, okay? 
When they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you. For he has a spirit that makes him mute, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes frigid. So I ask your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground, rolling about and foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can... All things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him. Never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you so much for how you work through your word, how you give us courage in the face of adversity. Hope when we have none. I pray that today you would work through your scriptures and through your broken vessel, Ryan. Thank you for how you work in our lives and show us all we need is you. Be with us today. Help convict us and challenge us and encourage us as we walk through this text. Help us to see that this is your word to us. This is not just a story time. This is a historical account of how your son Jesus, of how you, Jesus, lived life and did ministry. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. So I'm grateful for the opportunity that I get to preach. Uh, I usually get to do it between three and five times a year. It just depends on how the schedule works out and you know, what, what my dates uh, as far as availability are. And every time I get ready to preach, usually the week or two leading up to me preaching, uh, I have anywhere between 10 and, and 30 people ask me, hey, what are you preaching on? What are you preaching on, Ryan? Uh, and usually I'll tell them the topic, you know, whatever it is, and they'll be, oh, that's cool. I'm so excited. Oh, that should be a good one. That'll be a great one. It didn't happen like that this time. <laughs> Let me tell you what happened. I would answer them with, I'm going to preach on doubt. Or I give them the title, The Church and Doubt. And their immediate question for me was, did you choose that or was that assigned to you? (laughs) So that was a different response than normal. And so I, I, I thought for a little bit, like, what makes this so different? What makes this so unique? 
And I'm sure there's a, a, a hundred different reasons for why people landed where they landed and, and asked me, did you pick that or did Brad just make you do it? But I think one of them is, is, is quite simple. We're afraid of doubt. We don't like to talk about it. We don't like to look at it, think about it, acknowledge that it might exist. There's really, I think, two camps that I don't like when it comes to doubt. I think you've got the camp in, the Christi- in our church, not our church specifically, but in especially the American church, where doubt is, 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 is hidden. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to let on that we're not as all the time confident. But there's the other side, which I think was kind of prevalent in my generation, where we kind of wear our doubt around our neck like a medallion, and, and it's... it's Spiritually mature to be a doubter and a skeptic, but never find concrete truth. I think there's a better option. And what I want to show you today is not so much always how to deal with doubt, but I want to show you how Jesus deals with doubt. And I want to show you the loving, compassionate Savior. That if you're a Christian... He's the one you worship. So as we, as we look at Jesus, I just want you to spend some time watching him. Watch him do life. Watch him do ministry. I think doubt is, exists in every single one of us. But the question is, are you willing to admit it and are you willing to do something about it? The Christian life, I promise you, is a a daily fight to believe. It's a daily fight to trust God's character and his promises. I don't know what it is for you, and I I can't list out all the doubts. Uh, I wouldn't have any time left to talk. But maybe it's your circumstances. Maybe they're so hard and so tough that you can't imagine why God would allow them to happen to you or someone you know. Maybe it's a particular doctrine or scripture that you just get frustrated that you see in scripture and you don't know what to do about it. It could be simply the unknown of your future and it scares you to death. And you wonder, does God really care or not? For me, I'll be honest, I doubt all the time. Well, one of the ways that I see it most regularly right now is in, in my ministry. I have the privilege of ministering to 90 to about 120 high school students on a regular basis. And so many times I'm faced with my own doubts of, God, do you really work now? God, I'm watching this student run off after the things of this world who three months ago confessed belief in you. Are you still working in our students? Are you still working in me? Or when I, you know, when I blow something and, and just mess something up and it's something that I've worked on and something that I thought God had given me victory over and then I'm sitting in, in kind of my tears just like, I thought I had this. Lord, where are you right now? Doubt shows up in our parenting, shows up in our jobs, shows up in our relationships. I'm not sure what it is for you, but it is real, and we all struggle with it.
So while questions for God are not a bad thing, at the root of all of our doubt is a distrust in the character of God. We don't really believe he's good. We don't really believe he's powerful. We don't really believe he cares. So while our normal intuition is to run from God, I want to show you from Mark 9 what Jesus would invite you to do. And he will invite you, I promise you, to come to him in your need, to confess your doubt to him, and surrender everything to him, no matter your circumstances. So let's dive in to Mark chapter 9. Jesus, along with Peter, James, and John, have just come down from the mountain where Jesus had uh, transfigured himself, where it seems like he put some of his glory on display for those three disciples, and they were shaken. They were shaken. Understandably so. And so they they come down this mountain, and and they come and find an argument with the remaining disciples and some of the scribes. We don't know all the details but we can pretty well assume they're arguing over the fact that they couldn't get rid of this evil spirit. And most likely, the the scribes being the the gentlemen that they are, are probably picking and making fun of and kind of being like, hey man, I thought you could do that. And their disciples are, are starting to get frustrated, not sure how to defend themselves. So here's what I need from you right now. I need you to jump into the text with me. So let's pretend for a moment that you are part of the crowd, okay? So let's, let's say you're standing in the crowd, just watching events transpire. You were going about your business, but then you see this man who you know. He comes up to this group of disciples that you know follow this man, Jesus. And he brings his son, who you notice very quickly can't speak. And you know that every once in a while he has these violent seizures that cause him to foam at the mouth. And you say, man, this should be interesting. Let me, let me just kind of, let's, let's just, hey, let's just hang out for a minute. Let's see what happens. So you're watching and you, and you see this man come to the disciples and, and he kind of lays out for his disciples, I've got nowhere to go but this. I need Jesus to heal him. I need Jesus to cast out this evil spirit. So the disciples, who have already done some of this already, they said, well, we can take care of this. So they try and they try, but they're not able. The evil spirit is clearly still in control. But then you start to hear a little buzz going on in the crowd. It's not a huge crowd, but people start to be like, hey, hey, there's Jesus. He's coming. They start to get excited. And the whole crowd kind of walks over to Jesus and, and, and greets him. And Jesus, being the loving guy that he is, calls all the attention to himself off the humiliated disciples and says to the scribes, we think, what are you arguing with them about? What are you arguing with them about? So if you can picture the scribes, so you're sitting right there kind of watching this, the scribes are probably going like this. You answer him. No, no, you answer him. I don't don't, don't know. They don't want to talk. And so the man kind of steps out from the crowd and he says, hey, hey, I brought my son. I brought my son because I needed help. You can see the discouragement on his face. He's already seen the disciples fail. How much better could Jesus be? He says, I need help. Here's my boy. 
Jesus' response is quite interesting. Because he, he's told that his disciples were not able to do it, and he responds like this. He says, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? You see this frustration of, man, I just wish everybody would just trust me. They would see my power. They would see my love. But he doesn't stop there. He then moves on to say, bring him to me. Bring him to me. So the father brings him. But you see immediately uh, another, one of those, the seizures or spiritual attacks seizes him. He's throwing himself on the ground. His mouth is foaming. And Jesus in his compassion looks at the father. Just imagine you're there watching this happen, stepping back because you don't want to catch whatever the kid has because that's what you're going to do. That's what I'm going to do. And he says, how long has this been happening? Do you think for one moment Jesus had no clue? Remember, he's God. The compassion, the listening of Jesus is such a beautiful piece How long has this been happening? So the father continues to explain and continues to see in his own heart that I've got no hope. This has been going on since the child was young. He's been almost killed multiple times as he gets tossed in the fire and into the water. And then the father just looks at Jesus and says, but if there's anything you can do, but if you can help, have compassion and help us. We know from the, the, the whole uh, of Scripture, Jesus' mission was not to come and eradicate disease. It wasn't to come and make sure everybody who had a physical ailment or a spiritual uh, ailment, he wasn't coming to make sure all that was taken care of. He came to live and die for you and for me. But Jesus also was compassionate. And he was powerful. And he used who he was to draw people to himself to get to see him and know him so they might trust him eternally. So the father explains all of this and just asks, how beautiful is that? I don't think we talk, we we sometimes get so caught up in how am I asking, what am I doing, how am I doing this? He just says, hey, I need help and if you can help me, please do it. Can you see the compassion of your Savior in this moment? Look at it. In a moment where Jesus could have said, Oh, faithless generation, get him away from me. Oh, faithless generation, I, when will you guys start trusting me until you figure this out? I'm not doing a thing. He could have done that. He says, bring him to me. Like a good physician, he asked questions. How long has this been happening? And he finds out, or he is told very quickly, forever. He listened to the pain. And he saw the doubt. The doubt was clear. Not only just in the father, 
Because said, but if you can help me, you hear that? There's an if. He's already seen his disciples fail. But if you can help me. So there's doubt in the disciples. There's doubt in the Father. And the scribes are not sitting there with confidence in Jesus either. Doubt abounds in this moment. So how does Jesus respond to this request? First, he said, come to me. But then he responds with a little bit of sarcasm. I think this is great. He says, if I can help, if I can help, all things are possible for those who believe. Jesus actually just turned the tables. He said, I've got the power. Do you have the trust? Now, I don't have a lot of time, but I just want to mention, this is not a blanket statement that if you just believe, Jesus can make you rich, healthy, or wise. This is Jesus looking at this father and saying, I am here, I am ready, do you trust me? This is the build-up to probably the most Familiar piece of the text. We've used it here in our church before. We see him father, or sorry, challenge the father to believe. And then it says the father cries out. What? He cries out, how soon? What does your text say? Immediately. Immediately he cries out. I believe. Help my unbelief. What a beautiful moment. The more I've thought about and studied this text after I've kind of picked it to work off of, the more I've been encouraged and the more I've been built up because Jesus doesn't just invite us to come to him. He actually invites us to bring our doubts to him, to confess our doubts to him. And that's what's happening in this moment. This father is saying without hesitation, he's pouring out his heart to the Lord with a sincere confession of faith and a desperate request for the Lord to increase it. Sincere confession and a desperate request for the Lord to increase it. I really uh, appreciated how uh, William Hendrickson in his commentary described it like this. He said, the father was certain of two things. That he did indeed have the kind of faith that Jesus demanded. But also that his faith was imperfect. Beset by fears and doubts. There's only five words in the original language. But these five compromised that sincere profession of faith that I do believe. And an earnest moving petition help my unbelief. Meaning continue moment by moment and day by day to come to my aid. So that I may overcome my unbelief. Let me read that again. Continue moment by moment and day by day to come to my aid so that I may overcome my unbelief. Is there any other place in scripture that's a more accurate depiction of the up and downs of our heart? Of Jesus, I believe, but help me because I don't believe. Jesus, I believe, but help me because my, my, my belief is really, really small. It's really weak. It's really feeble. I'm struggling to fully trust you. I love this. 
in this moment, if you can put yourself in the, in the context here, the father has every reason to doubt. <laughs> Nothing's ever worked for his son. He brought him to Jesus and was met with his disciples who unsuccessfully worked with him and were not able to cast out the evil spirit. This is us, friends. Put yourself in this text. This is us. I don't know what this moment is for you. It could be that you've sinned again in a way that you thought you had beat and you question and wonder if the Lord really is going to help. Maybe it's a diagnosis about your health that comes back with that, that's really, really bad and you just wonder or doubt, God, are you really good? If, if you were good, why would you allow this? Or maybe you're watching someone you love living for themselves without a desire to serve the Lord. And you're wondering, where in the world are you, Jesus, right now? These are the moments that we can come freely to the Lord and confess our doubts. We bring them to Jesus who knows and understands. Distrust in God is sinful, but it's not the end of the world. It's, it's not something that's unique to you or to you or to you. It's something we all struggle with. And if we can take our doubt seriously, it can be an incredible opportunity for spiritual growth. If you're willing to say, hey, here's something that I'm struggling with, Jesus. Please forgive me of my doubt. Help me to see clearly. One of the things I love uh, is looking at Hebrews chapter 11, right? Uh, We call that the hall of faith. Um, Many men and women who uh, lived for the Lord. But if we look at really the whole story of these people's lives, they were not perfect, They were not always faithful. If you read through Hebrews 11, you'll come across names like Abraham, Sarah, Moses, and David, and many others. So let's just talk about them for a moment. Abraham. He was promised to be made into a great nation and to be blessed. But twice, twice he called his wife his sister because he was afraid he would be killed. Is that trusting that the Lord was going to take care of him? No, he was freaking out. He was doubting the goodness of God in that moment. Abraham struggled with doubt. Sarah, after the Lord provided so faithfully for her family and then promised her a child, she laughed out loud. The first ever LOL in scripture. I wouldn't recommend doing that when God makes you a promise, by the way. She struggled at first to trust that God could do what he said he was going to do in that moment. That's us, guys. Moses was told to take his staff, assemble the congregation, then speak to a rock so that water would flow. But Moses, being the smart guy that he was, knew the last time he was supposed to do this, God told him to use a stick and hit the rock. So he just like, man, that's much more dramatic. I'm going to go for that. Uh, I don't know what all he was thinking, but he strikes the rock instead of speaking as God clearly commanded. 
And what does he say? What is, how does the Lord respond to that? He says, because you did not believe in me. He was banished from the promised land. Doubt is serious, but we all struggle with it. And then David, not trusting in the goodness of all that God had provided for him, lusted after Bathsheba, slept with her, did everything he could to cover his sin, including sacrificing her husband on the front lines of battle. That's doubt. That's distrust in the character and promises of God. The reason I just say this to you guys, I just want to let you know, we're in good company. We're a mess. But we serve a great God. We serve uh, a Savior, Jesus Christ, who says, come to me. Bring me your hurts. Bring me your doubts. Bring me your struggles. So we have to come to the Lord in our need. Confess our doubt freely to the Lord, knowing he loves us and he cares for us. And ask him to increase our faith. So we left off in Mark 9 with this great statement of, I believe, help my unbelief. Now this begs the question, was this enough for Jesus? Was this good enough for Jesus? The father came to him and is saying, Lord, I have some faith. I've got some faith, but it is weak, it is feeble, it is small. So help me believe. So how does Jesus respond in that moment? Well, let's take a look. Verse 25 says, And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse. So that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand. He lifted him up, and he arose. Not dead. No more evil spirit. It was good enough for Jesus. The father fully surrendered to Jesus. The reason I want to use the word surrender kind of as our last thing to think about is because that's what everybody needed in this account of scripture. The father laid at the feet of Jesus said, I've got no hope. I've got nowhere else to go. I have some faith, but I need more. Help me, Jesus. We'll talk about the disciples in a minute, but they were taking things into their own hands. And even the scribes were sitting on the edge, full of doubt, full of questioning, not willing to surrender to the coming Messiah. Jesus worked through the Father's feeble faith, reminding us, this is important, reminding us the most important part of our faith is not the amount, but the object of our faith. Because the Father had just a little, but it was good for Jesus. Jesus stepped into this father's grief and hurt and said, I will do that. I will work now. That is the Jesus we serve. That is the Jesus we love and know. 
I want to draw your attention, though, just really quickly to some people we haven't really talked about, the disciples. What was going on with them? They had previously cast out demons. It wasn't like this was new to them. But Jesus gives us a very clear statement about what the issue was in this moment. In verse 29, he says, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. He draws our attention to the disciples' lack of dependence and trust in their Savior. Because that's what prayer is. Why do we we struggle to pray? It's because we think we're awesome and we don't need God. I'm there. That's why I need to pray more because that actually shows my dependence on God. I sit in my office sometimes and fire out emails and read more scriptures and read more books and go out to coffee with students and meet with them. But am I praying that God would do the work that I can't do? Prayer shows you and me that you're dependent on God, somebody more powerful than you. So what does full surrender look like? If everybody needs to recognize they can come to Jesus, they can confess their doubts, what does surrender look like? It looks like coming to Jesus through prayer and time in the word because you trust that he is all you need. It looks like heartfelt confession of your doubts and failures because he loves you and you know he can help. Looks like genuine, fervent, unrelenting prayer because you know God has power and the desire to work through prayer. Do you believe that? One of the comments that I hear all the time in ministry from people who are struggling with doubt is they say it just like that. You know, I'm struggling with doubt. So I usually try to ask lots of questions and figure out what's going on. But so often I I find out that by struggling with doubt, all they really mean is there's some things bouncing around their head they've never done anything about. So how do we really wrestle and struggle with doubt? We get into God's word. Because at the end of the day, you know what doubt is? It's a belief in the wrong direction. It's a belief in the wrong direction. If we need to be believing in Christ and in God and his character and all his promises... Doubt is believing that we're in control. That God's not really good. That he doesn't really love us. He doesn't really care. It's belief in the wrong direction. So we go to God's word to change the direction. We go to prayer because we know God works. We get around godly people in a small group because they can encourage us and help us bear the weight of our doubt. And we fight to believe. We cry out to the Lord knowing he hears and knowing he cares. You can't help, I can't help but be moved as I read through Mark chapter 9 and see the compassion of my Savior. That when he, the Father in the story, says, help my belief, I believe, help my unbelief, excuse me. Jesus says, I'll work on that. That's good enough for me. That's the God we serve. He's not one who, who is just going to let you sit in your doubt if you're going to pursue help and hope in Christ. That doesn't mean all your answers will be given to you. That doesn't mean you're never going to get sick. You're never going to 
have hard things in your life. That's not what this means. But what this means is that you can have confidence in God no matter the circumstances. Because what you needed most was provided in, your, in the Son, Jesus Christ. Surrender is laying down at the feet of Jesus, professing our feeble faith, confessing our existing doubt, and praying for God to work. That's how we work through doubt. So while I haven't put together a thesis on doubt and the ways to kill it, I hope you can see that what you need is Jesus. You need to draw near to Jesus when you're tempted to run. You need to go to his word where you can find hope and help. Get around good people who love Jesus to encourage you, help walk with you. If you're not reading your Bible, taking in good books, praying, getting around other believers regularly, you're not struggling, you're just sitting in your doubt. You're not fighting, you're wallowing. So let me encourage you. We all have doubt, but let's go after it. Let's press in to Jesus. As I, as I kind of finish up, I'd like to invite the worship team to come up here and join me. I want to read just a short portion from an article I read on, uh, on Desiring God's website this past week. It's written by a mom who's struggling with some severe disabilities in one of her children. And she's wrestling with the idea of his spiritual condition. So I just want to read it to you. She says this. She says, I'm learning to live in a kind of blessed unassurance. Sometimes that lack of assurance is the very place that true faith grows. It grows in the soil of powerlessness. Faith grows when all illusions of control have been finally wrested away. This is a genuine faith that doesn't count on conjuring up the right prayer formula to get my way or finding the right selective combination of verses to soothe my heart. Rather, my faith is in Jesus. I'll spend the rest of my life getting to know this God whose way is perfect. I'll spend the rest of my life getting to know him in his word so that my faith in him can grow so that I can better understand his ways and his heart. Faith grows when all illusions of control have been finally wrested away. We see this in Mark chapter 9. We see this father who actually in other uh, accounts of it in other gospels, it says that this is his only, only child. And he's wrestling with the fact that I've got nowhere else to go. I've got nowhere else to go. Jesus is inviting you to come to him. He's not going to push you away. Confess to Jesus all your doubts and surrender to Jesus no matter the circumstances. Your doubt can be a soil in which faith can grow. I've already said this once, but I want to leave this with you. Friends, simply put, doubt is belief in the wrong direction. So we fight it with directional change. We try to change the way that we think. Change the way that we love. All that happens when we press into Jesus. So we can see in Mark 9 that Jesus, <laughs> he does not turn his back on us. This is the Savior we serve.
He wants you to respond like the father who came to him without hope. Asked the Lord to work in his feeble faith and got to see the Lord heal his son right before his eyes. Let's pray. Lord, we need you. We do. God, I confess I'm a doubter. I'm quick to trust my own ways and my own thoughts and what I see in the world rather than your word and the confidence I can have because of it. I let the weight of this world influence my thinking far too often. Father, forgive me. God, I pray as we leave here this morning and as we spend time with our families or we head into our work week and Lord, I just pray that you would be at work in us, causing us to have a directional change in our confidence. That our, that our doubt would turn to trust, no matter the circumstances. That we could say, like the Father, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, and we know that you're listening and you care. Father, please. We love you and we're grateful. For all that you're doing, Jesus. It's your name we pray. Amen.